Hey, Jack, we're back with part two of our real estate uh, nuts and bolts of real estate purchase agreement podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fabulous. Nice to be here again with True FM. And I think we recognize that we were covering so much ground with buying a house that we needed to present it in two parts. So let's get started with the second part. One of the things that uh, even um, uh, lawyers that practice in this area sometimes have a difficult time with is putting all these provisions together and why how they relate to each other in this contract. But one of the, uh, the more difficult ones is is the title insurance and the role of a uh, title agency. Maybe you can explain that why that vendor is necessary in this transaction. Reminds me of the first time I bought a house. I was in California. I was a young naval officer. I was buying the house with another naval officer because neither one of us could afford the house on our own. <laughs> and we have a, a sales agent. I think her name was Doris. I said, Doris, what's title insurance? And she said this. It was remarkable. I can't explain it, but I know it's important. You need to buy it. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, I'm going to buy this thing. Hell, I had no idea what I was buying, but she said buy it. So title insurance is insurance that guarantees that you have good title. Now, let's think about that. What's that mean? When I, If I'm to sell you property, John... I'm going to give you a deed. I'm going to warrant that I have the right, the authority to give you that property unencumbered. That is, nobody else can make a, a claim on that property. A couple exceptions. AEP has a, an easement in my backyard for the electrical line. Columbia Gas has an easement to run a gas line. But outside of that, I'm giving you everything. I have the authority to give you this property. But sometimes transactions get goofy. And let me tell you what I mean. I happen to do some claims work for a title insurance company. So here's the kind of thing that can go wrong. My client in Monroe County buys 49 acres of land. He thinks that he owns this corner of the land that's one acre within this 49 acres. He does everything right. He walks the land with the real estate agent, he walks the land with the surveyor. He's confident he owns this little corner. He puts his house there. <laughs> Guess what? He did not actually purchase that one acre. The person that sold him the house, the 49 acres, did not have title to that one acre. And the person that sold the 49 acres to his immediate seller didn't have title to that one acre. So all of a sudden, he's sitting on an acre of land with a house that he built that he doesn't own. That's why you have title insurance. So he files a claim against the title insurance company. The title insurance calls me and says, Jack, fix this as best you can. So that's an example of why you get title insurance. Does almost every closing on a real estate purchase contract involve the uh, closing agent, the title company? Am I mixing terms here? Well, let's handle – sort of, but I think I know what you mean. Whenever you buy property with a loan, the bank is going to get title insurance for that loan. The, the bank wants to make sure that it is the first lien holder. And maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Maybe we should have talked about mortgages first, but it's going to be number one in terms of priority, in terms of who has a claim against that land. The bank's going to ask for that all the time, and it's going to make the buyer pay for it. The buyer should also get his own policy to protect his rights as the title owner. 
Well, it, it, it sounds complicated, but there's companies that do nothing but set all this up at the closing, right? It's handled automatically because, remember, when you close, there are a lot of things happening. The money has to come in. It might be coming in from two or three sources. It might be coming in in part from your savings account. It probably will be coming in from a bank. The seller has to provide a deed. The bank wants a mortgage to be signed. So we have to make sure that all these papers and the money are exchanged in the proper way. That's why you go to a title insurance agency. That title insurance agency not only issues the title insurance that I just spoke about, but they actually handle the closing and exchange papers and money as appropriate. So when you get to that title insurance agency, all this stuff that seems kind of complicated is being handled automatically. You still want to make sure that it's being done properly, but there are forces to put this in play right now. Let's talk about uh, you now own the property, but you were saying that uh, the bank may have a mortgage on your property. Let's talk about mortgages in in a general sense. What is that? Well, the mortgage is the right that the bank has to claim your property in common speak as collateral. I'm going to borrow $100,000 from the bank. The bank is going to ask me to sign two papers. Actually, you'll be signing probably a dozen papers because of federal regulations. But once upon a time, you signed just two papers, the promissory note. I, Jack DeRore, promise to repay $100,000 at 5% over 30 years. Doesn't sound like the bank's going to rely upon Jack DeRore's signature and promise to repay. Uh, That's correct. The bank says, you know, Jack, we like you. But that's not quite good enough. Just in case you have a problem, we want you to sign a mortgage. And this mortgage says that we have the right to sell your house at auction in the event you default on the promissory note that so we can get paid. Now, if you remember when we talked about title insurance, I said banks get insurance on their mortgage. So the bank wants to be the first lien holder, as it's called. Because I'll borrow $100,000, the bank will get a mortgage. Five years later, I might get, I might take out another loan, maybe a home equity loan. That might be for $10,000. Well, now the holder of that home equity line of credit will have a mortgage. It will be in number two position. So in the event of a foreclosure, the bank, the mortgage, the, the purchase money mortgage holder, as we call it, gets paid first. That equity line of credit holder gets paid second. So there may be encumbrances on your title like mortgages and liens. Probably the most common would be then your mortgage or your equity line, correct? First, more, The first lien holder is going to be that mortgage, uh, what we call the purchase money mortgage holder. Before we get too far, I wanted to talk about something about property disclosure that won't come up that often in residential, but it might come up in when people are buying, let's say, apartments or real true fixer-uppers, and that's the phrase, as is, whereas, which I think is pretty intriguing. So, John, you talked about the obligation, or we talked about the obligation to disclose defects. Do you know of any situations where you don't need to do that? I can only think of if you don't live in the property, you might not know what the defects are. Well, there are certain exemptions. There are two things that are going on. There are about seven or eight situations where you don't have to fill out the property disclosure form. And I think if property you haven't lived in and you're selling it like an estate, you know, your mother died and her house is for sale, that would be one. 
But if I have property that I'm worried about, I can sell it as is, whereas. That's magic language. That means, and I've really read a case like this, I can have bats living in the attic. And I don't have to tell you that I have bats living in the attic. If I say it's as is, whereas, you buy it, and two nights later, you're awoken because of all the clawing around in the attic by the bats, you're out of luck. Now, you can say, Jack, you knew about the bats. You should have told me. And my response will be, you're right. I did know about the bats. But those four words, as is, whereas, I don't have to disclose. Now, I can't lie. If you said, hey, Jack, have you got bats in the attic? I can't lie about that. I can't do that. But if you and don't that's ask, not to foreclose the uh, buyer from doing their due diligence and having their inspection. It just takes the obligation off the seller. It takes the obligation off the seller. But and and then there's another f- meaning for as is whereas that real estate agents use. They use it in a different way. And it took me a while to figure this out. They'll put on a contract as is whereas they don't mean it in the sense that I described. They mean it to say, hey, you can have. Mr. Buyer, you can have the property inspected, but the seller's not going to make any improvements no matter what. All right. You're buying it the way it is. You're buying it the way it is. So then let's talk about foreclosures as our last um, uh, issue here mm-hmm. with real estate purchases. We talked about uh, somebody not being able to pay the bank back, being in default of the mortgage. At some point, the bank's going to stop waiting for payment and start a process called foreclosure, Right. Correct, and that's where that mortgage comes in. It's by virtue of the mortgage that the bank can file suit against the homeowner and say, and says to the court, in essence, Mr. Smith is not paying his loan. We have a mortgage. We're allowed to foreclose on the mortgage, which means that judge, ultimately, we want you to order that this house be sold at a public auction conducted by the sheriff. And a foreclosure is a legal proceeding. Yep. And it, it really uh, takes the course of any other legal proceeding. The bank has to file a lawsuit in court, and the homeowner has to get notice of it, correct? Oh, absolutely. You have to. It's just like anything else. It's, it's a good old-fashioned lawsuit, but its direction is to foreclose on the mortgage. The other way quickly to buy a house, though, uh, is on land contract. What's the difference between that and what we've been talking about? A land contract is a device typically used where the buyer can't get financing through a bank. So I'll say to you, John, John, I'm going to buy your house. I'm going to make payments for a couple of years. We discuss with the, We discuss a purchase price. We discuss the monthly payments. And at the end of this two or three years, I'm going to pay you the balance. The big difference here is that I don't get a deed from you until I make that last payment. Remember, in a conventional situation, I'm gonna come to the closing table with all the money it takes to buy your house. I'm getting financing from the bank so that I give you the money, you give me a deed. I own the house right now. In in this situation, I'm making payments. You don't give me a deed until I'm done paying. It's almost like you're just renting the house until a certain point of time and then you can become the owner. Well, it has that appearance, but truly you are buying, but you don't have title. So you are, in essence, maybe we could say an equitable owner, but you don't have title to that property. Now, people that want to enter into a land contract have to understand the danger if they default on a payment. 
what happens under normal circumstances, say, within the first year of making your payments if you default? Within the first year, I can be evicted just like a tenant in an apartment. It's that it's that summary of a process, and evictions happen really fast in Ohio. Now, at some point, though, the law protects land contract um, uh, buyers by giving them some equity in the property. If you have made payments, I think, for five years and have 20% and have achieved a position where there's 20% equity in the house and then you default, now the, the seller has to commence a foreclosure action, which is a much longer process. And I think that might be an or. Five years of payments or 20%. I think that's right. So when you're thinking about entering into a land contract from the buyer's standpoint, if you put enough money down to have 20% equity, you would be protected by the foreclosure process. That's right. right. You would be. So it's it's a good deal for a buyer who can't get financing. It's sort of a second best alternative or maybe a third best alternative for the seller Mm -hmm. because he's not getting rid of that property. That's the bottom line. So if it's a rental property, for instance, if I sell my rental property to you on a land contract, right, and the tenants aren't paying you, guess what? It's still ultimately my problem. I think the land contract, uh, we would probably advise people to get a lawyer involved in that process. Oh, goodness, yeah. There isn't a form land contract like there is with the real estate purchase agreement we've been discussing, right? Actually, the, the Columbus Bar Association, I think, has one, but... Uh, certainly that's not an area where sales agents should be acting unilaterally. All right, Mr. Dorora. Well, that was quite an education for me. Well, we have one more thing to talk about. What's that? What happens if somebody backs out of the contract in a way that is not allowed not allowed by the contract? Oh, wow, okay. Breach of contract. Breach of contract. Thank you. Well, tell us about it. <laughs> well, breach of contract is... Uh, let's say, more severe for sellers than it is for buyers. So if I want to buy your house and we have done everything, I have done everything necessary to, to buy your house, and at the last moment you say, you know, Jack, I really like this place. I don't want to sell. I can go to court and file a lawsuit called specific performance where I can get a judge to say, hey, Mr. Gonzalez, sorry about your change of mind, But you've got to sell the house. And if you don't, then I'm going to, as a matter of law, transfer the property to the buyer. And it's specific performance, meaning that they're going to require the seller Mm -hmm. to perform under the contract. And what's the rationale behind that? The rationale is that your house is very unique and can't be replicated. And so there's no way to compensate me adequately except for letting me get that house. So if I was – if the deal was over a vehicle, a car, and you could buy the same model, make, mileage, you wouldn't be able to get specific performance. Correct. All right. So on the uh, seller side, what if the buyer backs out of a valid contract? What's the seller's remedy? Can it, he force the sale? No. It's not congruous. So all you can do as the seller is you have to put the property back on the market. And if it's a hot market like it is now, you're probably going to sell it for the same amount of money or more, in which case you don't have damages. So that buyer has no liability. Now, in a soft market, if you list the property again, you sell it for less money, let's say $10,000, now you have a $10,000 claim. 
And I assume that uh, the um, the duty to mitigate that lawyers like to say wouldn't allow a seller to just go out and take rock bottom price for the property just to get his damages. Right, because now that's my defense. As the buyer, I get to defend and, and examine exactly what that seller did or did not do. And if I can prove he just sat around, then I'll prevail in court. I think the only thing left to say is to remind our listeners that if they have questions, they can contact us on our website, Behal Law, that's B-E-H-A-L, BehalLaw.com. Hit the contact button, use the email system, send us your questions, John and I will answer them. Here's another good thought. If there are things you would like for us to talk about on the air, tell us that as well. John and I enjoyed having the chance to talk with you today about the nuts and bolts of real estate. We'll be back in a few weeks and we'll be ready to talk about some other aspect of the law that touches most of our listeners.